Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends, and then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. No one truly knows the identities of those who participated in the Boston Tea Party in 1773, but one man's name always ends up on the usual suspects list, and that is Dr. Joseph Warren, physician, resurrection man, revolutionist. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. In July of 1999, a construction crew working inside the Holden Chapel in Harvard Yard found human remains in the walls of the building's basement. That may sound suspicious and like the start of a big murder mystery, but they had not been hidden there by a serial killer or any sort of murderer. They had been put there by the faculty, staff, and students of the school. On purpose. Those were the bones of the many people whose corpses had been snatched from local cemeteries during the 18th and 19th centuries to be used as cadavers by those who were learning anatomy at Harvard. Just like any other medical school in the late 18th and 19th centuries, Harvard had a shortage of cadavers. If you've been listening this season, that should sound pretty familiar to you at this point. Laws at this time in Massachusetts, where Harvard is located, were a little bit less restrictive when it came to dissection than in other places, but not really by a whole lot. Legally, a medical school was allowed one cadaver for human body dissection once every four years. According to a 1788 issue of the Boston Gazette, a single body was made to do duty for a whole course of lectures. That may have been the law on the books, but in reality, not all schools received equal share. The more prestigious the institution, sometimes the more cadavers they received. Sometimes, though, no, not. Harvard legally received one cadaver annually, but though they had more than other schools, it still was not enough. Medical education in the 18th century was a lot different than today and varied a lot among schools. It consisted of a few central things, though. Formal lectures for one or two semesters, followed by an apprenticeship with an established physician. There was really no academic preparation. To attend lectures, such as those in anatomy, for instance, one would purchase a ticket for entry. As the lack of clinical material limited instructional experiences, class sizes, and opportunities for up-close dissection, 
the quality and quantity of doctors in Boston and in the United States as a whole really started to wane. Without the proper course materials, and yes, that did include fresh corpses, Harvard decided to change how it educated new doctors. It adopted a more hands-on study of anatomy, known as the Paris Method. And according to that, each student learned by dissecting their own assigned cadaver. You can see where the problem is going to come up, because while that would provide a more intense hands-on training experience than just watching your anatomy lecturer dissect a single cadaver at the head of the class, it now also put the school in the position of needing to obtain all of the fresh corpses it would need to continue that type of curriculum. So Harvard, like many other schools, began to skirt the law. They hired body snatchers. Just around 1770, uh, around the time the college was gifted funds to begin a professorship in anatomy, a group of Harvard's own took matters into their own hands when it came to the school's cadaver supply. Dr. Joseph Warren, along with some very well-known names, founded an illicit secret society known as the Anatomical Club. But it was better known as the Spunker Club, which appropriately featured a shovel as its representative symbol. The Spunker Club was, at least when it came to secrecy, kind of like Fight Club. The first rule of being a spunker was you didn't talk about being a spunker. The second rule of being a spunker was you didn't write or speak the name of the club. So you get the idea here. The purpose of the Spunker Club was to participate in anatomic dissection and to do so using cadavers that they themselves had procured. John Warren, who was Joseph's brother, was also a member. And he is a notable member because he was also the founder of Harvard Medical School. Some of the club's other notable members included the sons of both Samuel Adams and Paul Revere, as well as William Eustace, the future Secretary of War under President James Madison. Stealing a body from a fresh grave required at least three participants. You needed two to exhume the corpse and one to get ready to go with the getaway wagon. The club really took pride in their work. In a letter written in 1775 and published in 2012 in the Journal of Social Archaeology, John Warren, remember, Joseph's brother and a club member, who was not supposed to be writing about this, I need to point out, described body snatching by others as, quote, done with so little decency and caution that it quote, needed scarcely be said it could not have been the work of any of our friends of the Spunker Club. When he wasn't leading doctors and students through the graveyard, as a physician and a popular one, Dr. Warren treated everyone, young, old, Whig, Tory, it really didn't matter. His reputation in the city was impeccable, and he treated prominent people in Boston, including John Adams, Samuel Adams, and John Hancock. It's said he once saved seven-year-old future President John Quincy Adams's finger from amputation. He's also known to have treated the American-born wife of British General Thomas Gage. And this here is with a mark of possible historical scandal. That's right, because some historians believe it was Margaret Gage who shared intelligence with Warren about the British Army's strategies and tactics, in particular British plans to raid Concord. Joseph never revealed his informant's identity. But why, you might be wondering, and most appropriately, would your family physician have an informant? That's because Bostonian physician and patriot Joseph Warren 
played a central role in the events leading up to the American Revolution. In addition to being a remarkable physician and resurrection man, Joseph was a remarkable revolutionist and military officer. Paul Revere's ride from Boston toward Concord to warn revolutionaries there that the British were planning to raid ammunition stores and arrest prominent patriots John Hancock and Samuel Adams is a famous story in American history. But did you know it was Dr. Joseph Warren who dispatched him on that famous ride? Indeed it was. We're going to take a quick break here for a word from our sponsor. And when we're back, we're going to speculate what Dr. Warren and his allies talked about at the Green Dragon Tavern. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's thrivecosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about why Joseph Warren has been called the, quote, de facto leader of the American Revolution. So let's talk for a minute about Joseph Warren's young life. He was born in the town of Roxbury, Massachusetts, in June of 1741. And he was the eldest of Joseph and Mary Stevens Warren's four sons. He was raised in a three-story brick house surrounded by acres of pastures and orchards, It really sounds pretty idyllic. His father was a successful farmer, but unfortunately died after accidentally falling out of an apple tree while tending to those orchards. When he was 10 years old, Joseph attended Roxbury Latin School, one of America's oldest public schools, as well as one of its most prestigious prep schools known for preparing students seeking admission to Harvard. At age 14, Joseph was admitted to Harvard as one of the youngest of a freshman class of 45 students. He graduated in 1759 at the age of 18 and went on, of course, to become a physician. 
And for his personal life, uh, he married Elizabeth Hooten in September of 1764. She was a woman of considerable fortune, so he married very well, and the couple had four children. Joseph was a Freemason. In fact, he was the grand master of his group. Together, the men were known to meet at the Green Dragon Tavern to talk about the revolution. Joseph's revolutionary writings caught the eye of Samuel Adams, a statesman and political philosopher who became one of the founding fathers of the United States. It was through Samuel Adams that Warren met Paul Revere, John Hancock, John Adams, and other politically active and motivated people. Many of these names appear on some very important documents in the history of the United States. In February of 1770, it was Joseph who performed the autopsy of an 11-year-old boy named Christopher Sider. Christopher was at the time allegedly killed by a loyalist during a protest in the north end of Boston. Warren was the doctor who confirmed that Sider's death at the hands of British customs officer Ebenezer Richardson was the first in the American Revolution. Christopher had been fatally shot when Richardson, attempting to disperse the turbulent crowd, had fired a load of what's called swan shot, basically a wad of pea-sized lead balls out of a window. That was actually his second shot. His first, he wasn't loaded. Cider was struck in the chest by one of these pieces of swan shot and also had a secondary hit. It's frequently described as hitting him above the eye, although sometimes you'll read that it hit him in the arm. Christopher Sider died on February 22, 1770. That same gunfire also injured a local teenager, Samuel Gore, although he survived. Sider became a symbol of the liberty movement. Richardson was tried and convicted for killing the boy, although then he was pardoned by King George III before fleeing North America for England. And Joseph Warren was closely associated with this entire story because of his role in examining Sider's body. Joseph was also talented in rhetoric and was asked to give a speech commemorating the Boston Massacre, an event when British soldiers shot and killed five Bostonians. Other names had been considered to speak, including John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and Benjamin Church, but it was Warren who was chosen for his oratorical talent. He delivered the speech. In fact, he delivered it twice. The first time was in March of 1772, during the marking of the anniversary of the massacre, and the second time was in 1775, during a time when the revolution in the air was palpable. He wore a costume during that second speech, a Ciceronian toga, the garment of a freeborn Roman male citizen. Of his 45-minute address, the Boston Gazette reported that Warren's words were, quote, celebrated with unanimous applause. The British, it was reported, were in attendance, and they were not amused. In response to the set of punitive laws called the Coercive Acts, passed by British Parliament in 1774 after the Boston Tea Party, it was Joseph Warren who wrote the Suffolk Resolves. The Suffolk Resolves document basically said that the colonists weren't going to tolerate British rules. The text also encouraged the people of the British colonies to stop paying their taxes and to start training for armed conflict. The Continental Congress endorsed his declaration, which resulted in a boycott of imported goods from Britain until the intolerable acts, as they were called by the colonists, were repealed. We mentioned earlier that Warren was involved with the Freemasons. 
But he was also part of the Sons of Liberty, the North End Caucus, the Boston Committee of Correspondence, the Massachusetts Committee of Safety, and the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. That, it turns out, made him involved in so many organizations that that is how he got that nickname, the de facto leader of the American Revolution. He touched every branch of every group that was kind of forming as this revolution was fomenting. This man had more time in his day than I do. (laughs) For sure. He's a busy bee. He is a busy, busy bee. He also was a hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill, where he was killed in action alongside the infantry just six days after his 34th birthday and three days after he was chosen as Major General. According to British General Thomas Gage, Warren's death was, quote, worth the death of 500 men. So we're going to take another break for a word from our sponsor here. And when we come back, we'll talk about what Harvard did without the Spunker Club. And the answer to that is a few different things. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about what became of the Spunker Club. Samuel Foreman, a visiting scientist in the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard School of Public Health and president of Oak and Ivy Health Systems, has called Joseph Warren, quote, a seminal figure not only for his participation in proto-public health activities, but more generally in the founding of medically related institutions of all types at Harvard. Foreman believes that had Warren lived beyond his early 30s, he would likely have gone on to do more great things in his role as a physician and his role as a politician. Foreman wrote, quote, He was a proponent of disciplined medical education and pushed for the most up-to-date knowledge and techniques in medicine, both in individual cases and in public health. A few years after Joseph's death, the founding of the medical school in 1782 made Harvard a university. Previously, it had been known as Harvard College. In 1783, when Harvard Medical School officially opened its doors, it opened as the medical institution of Harvard University. And its first home was, yes, the Holden Chapel in Harvard Yard. In 1815, Massachusetts seems to have collectively felt like enough was enough when it came to stealing corpses. The state government passed the Act to Protect the Sepulchres of the Dead, which made it a felony to disturb a grave or steal a corpse. As you can imagine, this received a lot of pushback from the Massachusetts Medical Society. Where were they going to get fresh corpses now? For a brief period during the Revolutionary War, corpses had been, unfortunately, pretty abundant. It's believed that members of the Spunker Club likely collected corpses from both sides, That was a practice that George Washington referred to, and we're quoting him from the Journal of the American Revolution, as an abominable crime. But in the years after the war ended, that supply had dwindled back to pre-conflict status, making it harder than ever to keep up with demand in a rapidly growing country, a lot of people who wanted to be doctors. So in 1831, Massachusetts passed another law, the Anatomy Act which allowed medical professionals to legally obtain the bodies of those who had been imprisoned, those who had been determined to be mentally ill, 
and those who had died in poverty. Around this time, too, Harvard Medical School began moving to a new supply chain. They began bribing New York City officials to ship corpses from New York to Boston. It was, according to an article in the Boston Gazette, where body snatchers were, quote, emptying at least 600 or 700 graves annually. By 1842, Harvard Medical School employed Ephraim Littlefield as a janitor, but his actual job was to supply the school with fresh corpses, and they paid him $25 per body. Now, it's unclear if Ephraim himself was snatching the bodies or if maybe instead he was a go-between who was just kind of managing the whole thing. He was, though, also tasked with the disposal of the remains left over after dissections. Ephraim dumped them in the basement of Holden Chapel. That makes those the bodies that construction workers discovered in 1999. It's been determined that the remains belong to at least 11 males and females, but most of the remaining bones are in pretty bad condition and they make identification impossible or at least very unlikely. According to a 1999 article in student-run Harvard Daily newspaper The Crimson, Carol A.S. Mandrick, the director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at University of Hawaii at Manoa and former anthropology professor at Harvard, noted that, quote, some of the bones have metal pieces sticking out of them as if someone was trying to construct a skeleton. Amid these changes in the mid-1800s, the body-snatching spunker club wasn't really needed anymore, although no one is exactly certain when they closed down, what with there being a secret club and all. Surely somebody blabbed it in a letter, right? John Warren, where are you? (laughs) Surely you can do better than this. We didn't really talk about embalming or anything in this episode, but would you like some embalming fluid, Maria? I I would love some, perhaps, to go along with my revolutionist reading materials. There you go. (laughs) Come on over. In thinking about a cocktail for this one, I wanted to think of something at least vaguely related to time and place. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately thought about one of the popular drinks during this time, which would have been cider. Yes. But then I also got to thinking about how a lot of the founding fathers were also distillers to varying degrees of success. Right. And George Washington, in particular, made a lot of whiskey and brandy. You can actually still buy whiskey and brandy from the restored distilleries that he had. It's pricey. I do not have any on hand and did not use it in this recipe, (laughs) although there is whiskey coming up. And I also just wanted to think of other yummy things to combine with such items. So this is a little drink that is very delicious, and I'm calling it Secret Society. (laughs) But it's very easy to throw together, very easy drinking. And I think the mocktail version is really quite lovely as well. So for this, you are going to throw into your cocktail shaker a half ounce of lemon juice, a half ounce of simple syrup, and 10 fat blueberries. (laughs) And then you're going to muddle those together. And then once you've done that, and again, it's like what we talked about before. This is not a pulverizer. You just kind of want to break those berries up. Usually if they're fat and ripe, they'll break up pretty easily anyway. And then you're going to add an ounce of whiskey of your choice. Rye is great for some folks. Not everybody loves rye. So uh, really, whichever whiskey you desire. 
and some ice. And you're going to shake that all together. Just give it a good shake. Make sure it's all nice and cold. And then you'll pour it. You won't strain it. You'll pour it with the ice into a rocks glass. And then you just top it with four ounces of hard cider. This is so stinking delicious. I don't even know what to do with myself. <laughs> I don't normally consider myself a big hard cider drinker, but right. this might change that game. A little whiskey and blueberries made everything new. <laughs> and it does, it really lends it, a, I don't know, a different flavor. It's not... The blueberry addition, I think, is really interesting. <sighs> there are a lot of um, whiskey and cider cocktails out in the world. A lot mm-hmm. of people like to play with those two together, especially in autumn. But I wanted to do something that was a little summery. And I, again, I always like putting fresh fruit in a drink. It feels somehow a little fancier. But I also know I've been doing a lot of strawberry action, so it was time to trot out the blueberries this time. (laughs) And also, blueberries, so yum. Uh, This one's very easy to make as a mocktail. You'll start out the same way with the blueberries, the lemon juice, and the simple syrup. And then you're not going to put whiskey in there, but you can shake it. You can use a sparkling non-alcoholic cider here, and it's great. If you want to give it a little kick of something that's different since you're skipping the whiskey, This becomes a choose-your-own-adventure a little bit. We often throw in like a very strong, heavily steeped tea in lieu of a whiskey, which you could do, and it almost makes it like an apple-y iced tea situation. But I would also suggest if you want more of that like alcohol bite to it without the alcohol, this is a great time to trot out your habanero or your jalapeno syrup if you have it. And just throw a little in there and make it have that little bit of cha-chow that feels a little bitey on your tongue, yet is just a delicious syrup and no alcohol in it. Yum. And then pour several more for yourself (laughs) or friends. (laughs) I do like ciders, and I'm actually, I'm I'm happy to see that one has popped up. Dun-dun-dun. Listen, I'm trying to get around to everything eventually. Yeah, Um, you'll get there. If we did only what I naturally gravitate to, it would be all vodka and chartreuse all the time, which would be amazing, but boring for vodka everybody else. Vodka and Diet Coke every week. <laughs> and then a cordial of chartreuse right. or some cognac every evening at right. dinner. Not predictable um, at all. Not at all. I mean, did I want to put a cognac or a brandy in it? Yes. yes. Did I? No, because I'm, I always try to stretch a little. I actually was wondering if you were going to go in a direction of an apple brandy, because that's a very New Englandy kind of a business. I thought about I knew, it. But I'm, I actually, I'm, I'm so like happy to see this direction that you have gone into, because there's... <laughs> How many Apple Jacks do we need in the world? Like a black Very <laughs> yummy, but it's fun to play with stuff and make new fun things. Blueberries are, they do a magical thing here because it doesn't, you don't really taste blueberry, but you taste like a fruity essence to it that is discernibly different from just apple, which is nice. The skins tended to settle on the bottom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the interior is like pulpy and lurks in like the middle range with your ice more than anything. And then the rest is about the golden tone you would expect. But you do get that nice, that nice berry. Yeah something if i think if somebody didn't know blueberries were in it they would be like what there's something in here i can't pick out it is a fruit and possibly a berry but they it's hard to figure out like where the blueberry flavor Mm -hmm. is actually moving amongst your apple sip so try it but you can if you don't love blueberries you could put in other things you could try it with of course strawberries which we mentioned a raspberry i think this would be very interesting 
And I don't think a disaster to try it with a mashed kiwi in it. Oh, hey, that's interesting. Yeah, I love playing with fruit in a basic drink. It changes it considerably without becoming overwhelming usually, unless you use some really pungent fruit, which I suppose you could. You could put a mango in this and get a completely different drink out of it. So It would be a very different drink. <laughs> I'm sure it would be a very good drink, but it would be a very different drink. It would drink. suddenly feel much more tropical and less New Englandy in like a second. Definitely not Roxbury. Like a mango. No, not even a little. Hopefully you will give this a whirl and hopefully you will enjoy it as much as I do. And we also want to make sure we thank you for spending this time with us. And we hope we will see you back here next week for more Digging Up Bodies on Criminalia. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.